today in the offices of the Carolina Quarterly, we get by on spit, glue, and pluck. Question marks get left on the cutting room floor, and a moose makes a very brief appearance. That's coming up on CQ Speaks. Welcome to CQ Speaks, a podcast from the Carolina Quarterly. My name is Sarah George Waterfield, and I am the editor-in-chief of the Carolina Quarterly. Um, I'm joined today by our poetry editor, Calvin Olson. Say hey, Calvin. Hey, y'all. Before we get into today's discussion, I want to back up for just a second. This is the inaugural episode of CQ Speaks. Um, All mistakes are intentional. We're going to leave them in. Art is a process. Um, We are recording from the Carolina Quarterly office on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, So we are surrounded by some lovely Pepto-Bismol pink walls, and there may be occasional door slammings that happen as we are on the first day of class. Um, Some brass tacks, the Quarterly is the oldest continually published literary journal in North Carolina, started in 1948. We publish in print and online, and now apparently in podcast form, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, reviews, and art. You can find us at thecarolinaquarterly.com, and we'll have more information about that at the end of the episode. Anything you want to add to that, Calvin? That was perfect. All right. Um, Okay, so like I said, this is our very first episode, so we're really still, still feeling out what's going to happen on this podcast, but there are a few different types of episodes to look forward to. Um, including exclusive readings, reviews, author interviews, how-tos, journal club discussions, and, like today, editor conversations. So maybe we should start with some introductions. Calvin, um, do you want to, what do you want the wide world to know about you? Uh, That's a good question. Nothing, particularly, but I guess our listeners can know uh, I am a former student at UNC. I finished, they have a new program in literature and medicine which I just finished. It's an MA program. I have an MFA from Boston University. Uh, My MFA is in poetry. I won't name drop right now, but I might later. Um, (laughs) I I had the the holy trinity of poetry were my professors. I I really hit the lottery. So I'm a little bit old school for that reason. And yeah, I've been in North Carolina for a couple years. My wife is doing a PhD here at UNC. We have a one-year-old daughter and when I'm not reading poetry, I am also not writing poetry. So <laughs> I have a little bit of that. And I also have a kind of a sweet spot for translation. So in the pipeline and in my dreams, CQ will do a translation issue. But that that's would be excellent. Yeah, it's a, it's a while out, but I'm, I'm putting out feelers to try and figure out how to do that type of thing. You heard it here first, as did I. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, like I said, my name is, is Sarah. I am a current graduate student here in English and Comparative Literature. I am a transplant to North Carolina from the Midwest, so um, I like a good casserole, and I like to think of myself as unflaggingly polite. Um, my research and work is really about textiles and fabric in contemporary women's lit, and I'm a textile artist myself. I also sew a lot of my own clothing and um, have a live out in the woods with a menagerie of cats and dogs and chickens and catfish, all of which makes me sound much more like a homesteader that I'm really comfortable with, given that I drowned my three tomato plants this summer um, pretty resoundingly. So, okay, let's, let's get into it. 
For this first episode, um, we wanted to get together some of our editors to talk about the process of sort of soup to nuts putting together um, this journal and particularly choosing work for individual issues of the CQ. Um, We are somewhat unfortunately recording, as I mentioned before, recording this on the first week back to school, so availability is limited and emails are going unanswered. We do have other editors. You will encounter them in other episodes of CQ Speaks. Uh, But Calvin and I are here, which, let's face it, really the best of us. Right. The old old timers. We are the old timers. Do I outrank everybody time-wise? That's worrisome. Except for me, yes. There you go. All right. Take that, Um, Travis. So, Calvin, as poetry editor, and full disclosure, I was a co-editor with Calvin Mm -hmm. um, for poetry, and that's kind of how my entree into the journal as well. I did that for a while uh, myself. I was a co-editor with someone else before you, um, and now I am here doing this, which is weird. All grown up. Yeah, right? Like a real person. (laughs) Um, So, walk us through from your end what the process of submission, reading, and selection um, for the journal looks like. Sure. Yeah. So I will probably forget that order, but we use Submittable like almost everybody else does. They are a phenomenal company and we love them. So everything that I see, I see on my computer screen. Uh, Ideal world for me, I would print them out and read them out loud, um, but real world me can't pull that off. So there's for me i currently see and respond to everything uh we had some turnover with our interns um my right hand man is doing an mfa now he's in new york so eric is bless him still helping me out electronically but for the most part it's me right now i did just get an email from him though and he will be back in north carolina a couple of times over the fall so he might be a guest on that is a great idea yeah Eric is one of the best thinkers I've ever met. I love watching that kid process things. It's (laughs) awesome. He's great. So something comes in on Submittable. I try and keep it within between four and six months, which every time I get close to catching up to four months out, since people have sent stuff, life happens. Um, So currently it is a four to six month window. I see everything. I read everything as blindly as possible. I will open the submission um, from the back end, and I will just click immediately on the link. I don't. If there is a cover letter, I don't read it until after I've made a decision on a preliminary decision on the poems. So essentially, they come in. I read them. We currently accept up to six, um, which is sometimes a great number and sometimes <laughs> five too many. But yeah, that's kind of the name of the game. So we take six because we like a range, and I'm hoping to find submissions with more than one poem that we can publish either to get a range of the writer or if I can pull it off to get a theme going between the poems that we accept for any given issue. So I will see them, I will read them, I make a preliminary decision. Um, We have, and I learned this, I was an intern or an editorial assistant while I was at Agni Magazine at BU, um, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal literary magazine. Uh, We want to be them when we grow up, but they... (laughs) They, they taught me that there are two levels of quote-unquote rejection. One is just a flat-out, thanks for sending this, it's not going to fit, good luck. And the other one is, we see some promise in this, we, it kind of fits our range, but we're not going to bite on it right now. 
which is something that you definitely taught me coming in. Sure. I, as poetry editor, was just like, nope, can't deal with this. Right. Go away now. Yeah. Submit if you <laughs> submit again if you are like really on top of things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's some people will take those and run, and other people you don't hear from ever you know so kind of i like to do that because it also gives me a chance even in just the straight up this isn't for us i will tell people i'll put in a parenthetical i'll add it so we have a form letter because you can't respond to everything or you'll go insane Uh, but in the form letter i'll put in parentheses i'll say this poem was up our alley or hey thanks for letting me know this was the first place you ever published or you ever sent something here's a tip for something you can do in the future when you send somewhere else to maybe help you get seen that kind of stuff. So that allows us. And then with acceptances, those go into, I call them just by maybe pile. And once I have about twice as many maybes as can fit in an issue, then I stop reading submissions and I I go through, I make notes on all of them. I'll say, these are the two that I like. This poem can change or, you know, I'll say this last line, if we cut it, I will take it. And once in a while you find something you fall in love with and you just literally hit send. Um, which hasn't bit me in the butt yet. Um, hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> so I don't do that as often anymore, um, but I will I will essentially write myself notes. And then when I do have an intern, my interns will see those notes and they can either go through and flag them for me or kind of make those decisions to, is this something we're moving on or am I just, you know, is the rest of it terrible? I just love this line. Mm-hmm. So that way everything that gets published is seen two or three times, everything that I have a chance to that seems to have promise but I'm maybe not feeling it or I've read too many poems that kind of stuff I like to go back and if if I have burnout after a number of submissions I'll just stop so I don't end up either rejecting someone who you know is the next Lee Young Lee or accepting somebody who is has no right to be anywhere but there's a sweet spot of cranky poetry editor. There is, you want to right? Hit yeah, and not exactly. go beyond that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in the poetry world, you're just yeah. It's so tiny and so huge at the same time. There's not really room to worry about who's where. Who's. That's what I like about editing is I don't have to worry personally about where they're coming from or how much they've published. You know, if Billy Collins sends me something, I'm gonna take it because he's my hero. But I'm not going to take it because he's Billy Collins. I'm going to take it because I read it and I loved it and I go back. So I try to give everyone a fair shake. We try and find a range of poets. In our last, I believe it was our last issue, we had a a man from North Carolina who's never published anything in his life. He's just been writing poems. He's I don't know how old he is, but he's, yeah, it was great to get that. I read it. I really enjoyed it. I was like, this isn't technically everything we look for all the time but it felt right and then once I go back and gave him a maybe I read it a second time I still liked it then I go and check the letter and I see are you someone we know are you someone I should be worried about are you someone who sends us poems every five days and I don't want to talk to you all all of those things factor in but for me submissions go as blind as possible I try and get everything on my desk even if it's terrible you can still learn from it and yeah, so that's what I'm going for. Yeah, that first first time published North Carolina poet from the last issue was like, as now the editor in chief who doesn't have to worry about like the day to day quality of 
of what you're choosing, that was just a heartwarming story for me, and sure. I was so excited to be able to put that. Yeah. To be able to put that in the issue. No, it was great. That, and then I, I, I will always remember the day I landed my first quote unquote, you know, big submission, and somebody, you know, took a bite out of what I was trying to do, and that it opens a lot of doors. I feel like I am also submitting actively and writing and translating actively, so I feel the pain. I don't like telling people absolute no because I know that I know what it feels like to wait six months and forget that you sent it and then one day get an email from some dude you don't know that says you're writing set so that's not what we're going for we just that is yeah maybe that's editorial guilt I don't know if other people have that <laughs> but I I, I certainly do because I get yeah that's it's a numbers game it really is yeah and being on both sides of the numbers game gives me a little more empathy for both editors that don't like my stuff and people who no longer like me because I didn't like their stuff. Maybe we could do an episode where we all bring in our rejection letters for the best of the best and the worst of the worst. I keep mine. There's actually a literary journal, I think it's called Redheaded Stepchild, and they only accept things that have been rejected by other journals. Oh, that's so sweet. which is fantastic. (laughs) And they, yeah. Shout out to you guys, Redheaded Stepchild. I sent you some stuff and you rejected it, and that's a real philosophical existential quandary when the place that's supposed to take rejected work rejects your work (laughs) maybe that's a compliment i don't know it might be yeah maybe they're just like anytime we learn that we're not alone is always happy (laughs) um okay so i want you to talk through a little bit about a specific example i don't want this episode to be all or all, all non, sure. non-lit, mm-hmm. um, given that we are a literary journal. Um, but first, is there a distinction? We were talking about this a little bit before. Is there a distinction between a successful submitted poem and a successful poem? Does that make sense? A successful submission versus a successful poem. Right. That does make sense as a question. Um, my gut answer, as I mentioned before when Sarah and I were talking, is probably no I feel that for me and based on the way I've been taught to both read and also ingest poetry right it's not just sitting down to read it there are you know it's a verbal form originally and all this the the background of what poetry is and now that I'm saying all these things I've forgotten what the question is successful poem that's what it is so in my mind if there, if I receive a successful poem, and I'm gonna backtrack, I it's not necessarily going to be a successful submission because there are too many aesthetics at play, right? So there are I have, uh, and this is what's nice about receiving submissions and not responding to them for a while is I can take the time to sit down and say. I see all the technical elements. I love the line breaks. This is the type of things that I look for. What I'm looking for in a poem to publish is both, it's a successful poem, but it also does more than that. It's a poem that makes me feel. It's a poem that makes me think. It's a poem that, you know, those are all cliches, but essentially it goes beyond, I read these words and there they were. You know, I can write a sonnet that has iambic pentameter and 14 lines and Cesura and yeah turns and all of that but in the end that can be successfully a sonnet without being successfully a poem and another level on top of that would be a successfully good poem that people are going to read 
two days from now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And is there, in these kind of, like, other aesthetics, is there something about, like, a poem that goes in the Carolina Quarterly, and I'm doing air quotes here, which is... <laughs> if you can't see them, they're there. They're, they're there. Testament. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there something about choosing a poem for the Carolina Quarterly that m- makes you look at different a different type of poem more closely? Sure. That... A lot of the answer to that question, I think, bleeds into personal preference. Um, And like I mentioned, I'm a little bit old school. So having the Carolina Quarterly in mind does a little bit more for me. So there are, essentially, I have to get outside of my own head. And there are poems that I will love that I think are just fantastic. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they either meet the level that Carolina Quarterly is shooting for, which, you know, we're always trying to push and stay on top of things and be current but also very cognizant of what's gone before us and where ideas spawn from. So I think it's a little bit hard to differentiate between the two. That being said, there's kind of a, a mental space almost I go into where I'm looking at Carolina Quarterly. And having a history with the journal is nice too. Like I'm like, when you and I, Sarah, would kind of bat ideas around, we both were, you know, nature poetry nerds but we can't not everything can be a nature poem as much as i would like for an owl to appear in i will also take raccoons exactly badgers yep i don't know it's the portlandia episode where they put a bird on it that's kind of how it works but no but i would think through i'd say this is something sarah and i would look at and then as i would read through it i'd say this is too much like something we've already done Mm -hmm. or this is too much you know they're they're writing a poem you know after another poet and i've Either I have no idea who they are, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing that, but they're not there, or it's, it's imitation to the point where there's no reason to do it. You can make a great poem out of a great form. Yeah. It's, you know, so that's the type of thing where the, the, having the journal behind me and knowing that there's a print version coming out and that it has both my name on it and the Carolina Quarterly, there's a little more to use... <laughs> My great MFA mate, Lisa's name. There's more gravitas behind, that's her word. There's more gravitas behind the actual selection process than would go, you know, if it was a gut feeling and it was my journal, you know, the Calvin Quarterly, mm-hmm. it would, the level of work would be the same, but the poetry would be different across the board. So, yeah, we can bat that out. It's a philosophical wormhole. Yeah, no, that's I want to backtrack on now. So. Yeah. No, that is interesting because when I came on as co-editor with um, the poetry editor before me was Lee Norton, he had kind of like the the back and forth you're describing between us, um, he had sort of certain ideas about the poetry that he chose for, um, for the quarterly, which he shared with me and, you know, asked that I subscribe to them to some mm-hmm. degree. Sure. But then when I took over, that started to kind of adapt and morph a little bit as well, which is, you know, um, kind of the like weird quirks of institutional legacy in terms of like what what types of things do we publish, which look sort of vaguely similar, um, but have distinct sort of phases throughout the years. Right. Yeah. And there's also I mean. As in all things, there's there's levels of lit journals. You know, when the poetry editor at the New Yorker changes, a you Google who the new guy is if you don't know who it is yeah. or the new woman, and 
B, the New Yorker is the New Yorker, so they're going to be fine either way. Right. So the aesthetic may change. So there's, and we're, you know, in an undergrad journal, you'll never have any idea. Your editor in chief has taken three poetry classes, you know, it's just <laughs> like, and they, they, I, I have been this person. Like they just, they write terribly and they don't know it yet. And they're just not there. So right. being in that, in the middle ground, you know, toward, I'll brag, the upper echelon of, you know, we are upper middle class here at the Carolina Quarterly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that there's, yeah, it's a lot goes into that personally that you can't take out of it or else you end up kind of sacrificing the quality of stuff you would get. I think everybody has a radar if you've been in the poetry world long enough for what's correct in terms of publication but you know ee cummings will blow all of that out of the water and whoever successfully because it's really hard to try and be ee cummings (laughs) and if you do try please stop but once everyone stops reading him in 150 years and another one comes along we'll be there to take him so sure okay let's read a poem Okay. So you have pulled something out of the archives. Um, this, well, not like super far not super in the past. Far. Um, but so this is going to come from volume 66.1, which was fall of 2016. You got it. A weird time for all of us. So set that up for us and read it. And then maybe you can talk about kind of what made this a successful submission. Sure. Yeah. So the poem that I chose is by Chelsea Dingman. Uh, I have permission to do this from her. Uh, and I'll, we should also probably put this up on the website once we do that. So you can see kind of as I, I will give a couple ideas of what I saw in it. But essentially, it's, it's just, it works really well. Uh, it's called Clan of Fatherless Children. The forecaster says it will snow. And I tell my son yes when he asks for waffles, peanut butter. I can't mention your truck in a gully somewhere. How we used to sling songs into the night, windows rolled down. I didn't know we were close to death. Our cupped hands waited only for what falls. I want to tell you everything. How my greatest fear is leaving my child behind. How I ran from the world like snow from the sky. They say snow is harmless, yet I know what it is to be lost when touched. There is so much I want to say to you, but I choose to live. To stay quiet like stars amidst the sky's betrayal. The weatherman keeps talking, and I wait for him to mention a crash. For you to sprout wings from your back on the side of a road. I wait in this room with my son, a gauzy haze through the windows. The world outside obliterated. Only we are left, less whole. The walls are winged beasts that fold themselves over us. You are the snow. really nice to revisit that poem yeah it is as I was looking for it, I was like what am I going to do and I remembered early on in my tenure just how I remember there's there are gut punch poems and I I hope I hope so much that this is a persona poem um but I don't know that it is and the experience for me is totally independent of that so what's so in terms of what I saw, maybe the reasons why this, besides the fact that it's just beautiful and also hurts, um, I love, one of the main things I look for, and this is kind of the way I described it, I think on the website, is I'm, I look for a deliberate poetry. Poetry that's 
A poem takes up space in a way that no other piece of writing does. And I want to see that on the page, and I also want to feel that as I read them. So in this case, I love the line breaks. I'm always, always, always looking at lines. Again, old school, kind of how I was trained, but also what I look for. So when I write and when I read, I'm looking for line breaks that work well, and then individual lines that kind of add a dimension to the poem that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So the way that I read this, for the most part, you lose a lot of that, right? So early on, the first sentence is, the forecast says it will snow, and I tell my son yes when he asks for waffles, peanut butter. So the first line is, the forecast, forecaster says it will snow. Second line is, and I tell my son yes when he asks. And then the third line is for waffles and peanut butter. Right, so I tell my son yes when he asks, both works in the middle of that sentence. And also if you take the two lines together and you cover up everything but the first two lines, we have the son asking mom, I assume is how I read this, since Chelsea is a female. So sorry if I offend you doing that, but that's the way that I read it. So I tell my son yes when he asks, sounds like son has asked for snow. So it works both in forward as part of the line, but as an individual line, it works in reverse as well. So that happens other places, like there's one line that says, but I choose to live, period, to stay. And then another, another one that says, on the side of the road, period, I wait. So these are individual things that don't have anything to do with each other, but the lines themselves work beautifully in relation to what's going on. So yeah, essentially the feel was there the first time. I love the title. I'm a huge title person. Um, all of my poems, too many of my poems have one word titles. And I thought that that was, when I first started, I thought that was original. And the more that I read, I'm like, oh my gosh, guys, come on. <laughs> so yeah, I have a number of them, but I just, clan of fatherless children, there's one child, you know, so the other children are all, they're referenced, but they're all, is it absent present or present absence? I can never remember. They both work the same way. Sure. It's something I talk about a lot when I teach. And I never tell them which it is because I can never remember. They don't know and they'll right. never find yeah, out. Exactly. <laughs> so there are children present, but there is also only child present. So either speaker has lost someone in the same way, or there are other siblings who either can't speak or aren't awake. Whatever that is, there's just so much going on in the world of the poem that I don't see, which is brought about by the actual lines themselves. And that's, that is the, the ultimate way to do it, is to write a poem that it works both as a poem, as a moment, and then also has feelers to the outside world where there exists something outside of the poem that I am allowed to fill as a reader. And that's, that's yeah, you can't do that with a novel because it takes, you can, but you identify with a character or you have a narrator. In a poem, I tell my son yes, you know, immediately that I is me. And so that's what I wrote a lot of my thesis about. <laughs> this last semester was about how when you say I and you, you take on that type of persona, even if it's not a persona poem, it becomes your piece of writing. It's really, really cool. So. Yeah, so you, you as a reader are kind of implicated in this poem right? as well. And this is, this is such a, such a world-building, sort of capacious, really airy poem. Like, there's just room sure. in the poem, yeah. right? Yeah, and she does a great job bouncing back and forth between the situation in the poem and also the relationship with the person who's not there, literally now, right, and figuratively between that. It's really, I love the moment where you know, I imagine you doing these things and also 
here's this thing in front of me. There are things that remind me of you, but also you physically don't exist currently. So, yeah, it's just, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. I, want, I just want to read it again. So. Well, like we said, um, we will put that poem up on the website so yeah. that you can actually see and go through what Calvin is talking about um, as he's reading the poem. But if you want like an actual physical copy of it, you can also go to our website and order a back issue of it. We have, we have the ability. Um, so, no, I think that that's a really great example of kind of what, what ideal poems look like for this journal. Um, but also just like me as a reader, what, what I want to read, which is what, yeah, I, I yeah, don't know. I, I feel like you, you are frequently picking poems that are sure. like tailored to me, which I don't <laughs> think you're actually doing, but no. I like feeling, I like feeling like I know when I go into an issue, like these poems are really going to sure. do something in my world for me. Right. And that's why I love titles so much. And this one, like if you make yeah. a title, like clan of fatherless children, you got to deliver on it. Yeah. You know, because either it yeah. becomes Peter Pan or it becomes this really <laughs> heavy, you know, it's just like, can we say Peter Pan? Do we have to trademark that? I think we're, I think it's okay. Yeah. We're not sponsored by Disney. No. Yet. Not yet. Not yet. But yeah, <laughs> but that's, a, it's nothing like anything I would write. It's nothing like anyone, I w anything I would originally like gravitate toward. But once I see that and it does deliver, I mean, right from the get go, especially as a reader and an editor. I'm 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 picking you apart pretty well the whole time. So if something doesn't hold up, either you got to save it or I have to love it enough that it, you know, I can suggest a change and we can bat that around, but that yeah, no. That poem just kills it literally and figuratively. <laughs> does she have other poems in that she issue? She does. Okay. Yep. Yep, she's got another one um which I believe is called Hands, comma I've had. And it's very different. It's very sparse. There's a lot of white space in it. Oh, interesting. The, yeah, the stanza breaks are ampersands, which is the fancy word for the and sign. So, which I can never draw the right way around. Oh uh, yeah, no, it's impossible <laughs> to draw. I have one on a sweatshirt, and I try and do it upside down while I'm wearing it. It still doesn't. work. That seems harder, actually. It probably is. Um, well, that brings up a, a kind of another question I wanted to ask you is about how how you think, and you mentioned this a little bit, but how you think about kind of a range of poems in um, a submission sort of package in relation to individual poems. Like, sure. does that change how you think about individual poems or? Right. How does that work for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So what I'm essentially looking at in a submission is not anything in particular in that order. So when I'm submitting to places, I'm working on a book, but I'm also constantly producing new things. Um, I'm very good at producing. I'm terrible at editing. I'm horrific at submitting, which makes editing great because it can kind of make me feel less guilty about all of those. But I will send them five poems that have about the same tone so when I receive a submission even if it's you know if it's three or six or some people only send one which is an awesome and gutsy move it's yeah they will I will look at the range within the submission but essentially I understand that either these some people will tell me you know these are part of a book I'm writing or these are you know from a manuscript I've already published as a chat book and then I know right from the get-go these are related in somehow but that also, that creates an expectation in me that they're going to be related in some way, or I'll be able to see it. And so I, I will look for range. Essentially, if you have multiple poems that are publishable or at that level where I will look at them a second time, 
I'm going to try and find the connection between them myself. Either I'll do two that have the same tone, I'll do two that are completely different, so we see the range as a poet, or I will do two that are obviously connected. Um, I think there were a couple of poems in that same 66-1 issue that we just read out of by William Brewer, um, and all of them are about the same place and written to and about the same maybe fictional person. So they all have the same name in them, so they all do that. Other poems, you know, if you don't have, you know, some of them will all be related and only one of them works aesthetically or we only have space for one. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, oh, no, I think it does. sounding like I just wing it. But, yeah. <laughs> well, we all sure. just wing it a little bit, right? Poetry is winging it. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, let's move into a couple of sort of hot take questions. Sure. Okay, so what are some things in poems that make you more likely to spend more time with them um, than other things? Sure. We already talked about, like, nature poems. <laughs> right. Throw some animals Birds. in there. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so one of the things I will look for is a complicated relationship. So relationship, and, I mean, you can do any of those. <laughs> man versus beast. Man versus self. You know, all of those. So essentially, I'm look. yeah, if there is more than one person in it, I am looking for successful utilization of the other person. If you throw the name Kendra in there, I do not give any craps. I don't know Kendra. I have my own Kendra. And if your Kendra is a softball player and my Kendra is a chess champion, we have problems. So I'll, I'll look for poems that include me as a reader. And they don't have to be about things I know or things I understand poems that don't exclude people for whatever reason if that makes sense mm-hmm. um yeah nature poems are hard to beat um usually nature poems connected to real world quote unquote i hate saying that <laughs> real world poems connected to concrete essentially kind of dichotomies i'm really big into haiku i love competing images and ideas which falls again i guess into the relationship thing so i will i will look for com- competition within the poem and the other one based on what I kind of my own track record of publication I've learned that people will take poems that I thought were the weakest one of the bunch or that sound nothing like anything I've ever written and I remember one of I had an editor of Whale Road Review W-H-A-L-E Road Review Um, her name is Katie oh we'll edit that out if your name isn't Katie but (laughs) leave it in yeah leave it in no Katie Manning ha I did it anyways Katie basically wrote me back and said we'd love to take this poem and then when I said it's all yours then she said basically she hit me back and said I was like holy crap this is amazing and it literally zero percent like I I the older I get the more of a nature poet I reluctantly become (laughs) and it's a poem about being in New York City and it's rapid fire and it's very I have never been here before and here's everything I did in three days in like 17 lines just like boom 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 and nothing she's just like i loved it it was such you know great gut punch and i'm glad that she loved it and everything else i sent her i'm sure was flowery and slow and had a moose in it so yeah was it the same moose traipsing through all of the other poems (laughs) no but that's a great idea i haven't spent that much time around mooses were you done talking i have no idea So we just took a big break. If yeah. I wasn't done talking, you should have. Been. That's all you get. <laughs> okay, so what are some of your pet peeves in poems? Sure. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> um, so, among 
I guess I already gave you one, name dropping when I don't know who they are. Sure. Usually because I feel it's a way of trying to create intimacy in a poem um, where there isn't any. Right? And, it can, and you've described it today as feeling sort of alienating. Sure. For you as a reader. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So if you're Louise Glick, who I'll name drop now, she was one of my professors at BU. If you're Louise... One of the Holy Trinity? One of the Holy Trinity. Okay. Yep. If you are Louise, you can name drop all you want. Because either you're using it as a device, or you have 50 plus years of brilliant poetry writing, which I can comb through to figure out who this person is, right? So that's one. Uh, I have a very, very, very large chip on my shoulder. It's probably like a log um, about prose poetry. So, so the, 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 the number of words that you have <laughs> said to me on the subject of prose poetry. Yes is probably more than any other topic we have talked about, right. yeah. including your daughter. Exactly. Yeah, and I love my daughter, but I really, on the opposite aspect <laughs> of things, feel that way. So prose poetry, thank you, thank you, Flash Fiction, for being what you are, because you are prose poetry. <laughs> but, yeah, we don't do Flash Fiction yet, do we? No. Okay. Although. We could. It's we could. really cool. Yeah. That I can get behind. So anyways, yeah. So tangent, off the tangent, yeah. I when a prose poem is done well, they are phenomenal. There are I can count on one finger off the top of my head. Prose poem nope, two. There are two poets that can do that. Um, <laughs> one of those poems is The Colonel by Carolyn Forche, which I teach and I love and is just so good. Um, and the other one is there are a number of prose poems by one of my favorite poets. Um, she's from Vermont, or in Vermont, I believe. Her name is Mary Rufel, R-U-E-F-L-E. If you have not read her, read her. Um, I will give you all the books. All the books are good, um, including her essays, and I never read essays. <laughs> Anyways, I love her, and she has a series of prose poems which are very well done and very small, but also she, so it is a, it is a genre that is very hard to pull off because poetry, like I said, at least for me, holds space that other writing does not. So once it's a paragraph, I have a problem finding line breaks. I have a problem seeing. So the, the world you build within that can be fantastic and the words that you can use can be great, but it's much harder to pull off than most people think. So and maybe that makes me a dinosaur and maybe I'll get, you know, run over next time I visit somewhere with more poets. But that's one. Yeah. And then the other two are swearing when it's just swearing for swearing's sake. Um, swear words are very awesome when used correctly and when not used abundantly. Sure. Um, also, knowing the etymology of your swear word is a really interesting thing. Oh. Choosing it by that. Yeah. Um, yeah, wait, can you give an example of that? Oh, definitely not. Okay. Yeah, so, well, I'm just I'm just trying to think. So, yeah, I especially when I drive, I say lots of bad words. I said my first swear word when I was two. I'm not afraid of swearing, but swearing becomes a crutch very quickly. And every time I watch a movie that breaks the record for F-words, yeah. even if you talk like that in real life, I, I couldn't care less. Like, you're, you are creating art. So, yeah, just throwing them in there, and as I was being angry about that i forgot the other one um so the other pet peeve the other pet peeve have. well yeah. i like i'm always super impressed with like how you handle the volume of submissions sure. that come through right. because we get far more poetry than we get yeah. anything 
anything right. else. Yeah. Um, and you're you're doing this by yourself sure. now. And there was that period when I was doing it by myself, and right. I was much less um, on top of things than you were and right. was constantly feeling sort of overworked and so sure. I um, I did and I'm not I'm not proud of this but I spent a concerted period of time like only reading the last two lines of poems sure. to see right. if I was going to go back and read yeah. and read the rest of them sure. um, so there there was like a year long period where only last lines of poems were being read right um, which there's there's legit nothing wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> we I, all have to have some sort of screening sure. system, right? Yeah, and the other thing to do, and here's something if you want just a free tip if you're getting into or if you've been doing it for a long time, put your best, your personal favorite and strongest poem first. Yeah. And then, because if you bomb your yeah. first of six poems, I'm going to go through and I will read a stanza or the centerpiece or the first two lines of all the other ones, and if nothing sticks out, Gone. It feels particularly with the submission fee like it is incumbent on us to spend some time sure. with right. with all of the submissions. Um, but yeah, I was always reading those last two lines to see if there were like question marks yeah. in them. Um, which if you give me a sort of like Langston Hughes question mark, <laughs> we can talk. Right. Um, but if you are like asking questions that I really just like want answers to, um, that's not yeah. that's not gonna fly. No, that's fair. And that also reminds me. So my other pet peeve. And it's not really a pet peeve, it's just something I don't particularly gravitate toward, is poems that are going to be obsolete in three months. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So if you put an Oreo cookie in your poem, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah, if you put a current event in your poem, and I mean, I, I feel the way many people feel about current events. I kind of check out, essentially, of them. Um, political poetry is not my jam, but when done right, it can do some amazing things. Um, and the big stuff that other editors find, I'm all about. Yeah. Things like, how about that? You know, this, <laughs> these things that are going to be there and are funny and are cultural. You know, I love them when they work great and they will, the website probably has more space for that because yeah. we can do it more immediately. Um, but I don't have any difference in terms of what I look for website-wise. It's just a different venue. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Um, yeah. Because like I, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, we do publish in print and online mm -hmm. um, and we try to not overlap too much between those two right. although we will we reserve the right to overlap yeah and we, we have it in the contracts too like yeah. we may use this online but because there's such a volume of poetry that becomes for me it's just another essentially it's a it's a more immediate and you know wider ranging at, in some ways audience for a writer so when things come in yeah, I will look for the same types of things. They're just a lot of times, especially when, you know, if you have something complicated or line breaks or stuff like that, or it's all over the place, it's harder to put online because we have to, you know, deal with all the kerning and all that. Um, but essentially, yeah, it's just another arm for us to produce more of the great stuff we get without having to, there's, yeah. There are journals and I'm in a couple journals that if I land the print one, I'm like, booyah. You that's know even that that's better. Like better. Yeah. yeah. But there are, yeah, Carolina Quarterly, not the case. No. You are, it's all the same level. It's the same thing we look for. It comes from the same pool. And it will be the same level in the podcast as well. Exactly. It, it is right? a podcast exclusive. <laughs> yeah. That does not mean one thing or the other quality-wise. Yeah. That's great. I wonder if that counts as a publication for people. I would put it as a publication. Well, I would, I would put it in yeah. my bio. But yeah. If, if, like, I won a prize for it or oh. I forgot that I submitted it somewhere and they came back like, we love this. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. If you can't see it, it's not published. 
if a podcast plays <laughs> in an empty room. Right? Yeah. If I scream all my poems at people walking by, <laughs> can I still submit them to the New Yorker? You can, but probably from a padded room. Yeah, they won't take them anyway. So. <laughs> okay, do you have any burning thoughts about cover letters? Nothing burning. Um, I My cover letter is two sentences. I'm not going to tell you what they are because it seems to work pretty well. Um, so I guess one burning thing is I don't need to be told how to read your writing. I don't need to be told these are poems about my dog that died and after that I got addicted to cocaine and then I bought a cat and my cat also is addicted to cocaine. Like, That's a real it, wild ride. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there are, yeah, essentially I, I don't need to be dictated what it is. Your work will speak for itself. Yeah. I am very interested in whether you've published or not, but like I said, I read blind, so I'm not I'm not interested until after I've decided mostly yay or nay. Mm-hmm. And a cover letter will never sway me one direction or the other, unless you've never published before. Um, but most of that is either going to be a tiebreaker or it's going to dictate, you know, how I respond to you. And if you've never published before, I'm going to hit you back and I'm going to say, "Yo, this is awesome that you got this far. I know it takes forever. I know it's a numbers game." I hope somebody else takes them. If they don't, here's a poem or two. Here's a few things to tweak. Send me new stuff like that when you have it. Who you are, whether you've submitted before, if I gave you a nice rejection before, say that. And yeah, where you've published, that's it. Bios Short are, and sweet. Bios are optional, yeah. But I will. I go right past, I blow right past it. So if there isn't one, sweet. Well, I think that's as good a place to end it as any. Any final yeah. thoughts, Calvin? Things you nope. need people to know about. Nope. Anybody listening, please continue to submit poetry. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate, review, and sit a friend down to listen. Visit our website, um, thecarolinaquarterly.com, for more poetry, uh, stories, and reviews. And if you've been inspired by this episode to write prose poems full of question marks and poor ending lines, um, you can find the link to submit on the website as well. So visit thecarolinaquarterly.com slash subscribe for all the options to buy and read the journal. Our latest issue is 67.2 and um, is well worth picking up in print or as a digital copy for an end of summer break read or a back to school sort of bus read. A quick note on that as well. Our next issue, which is 68.1, will feature the winners of this fiction contest that we ran over the summer called Wake and Dream Again. And that contest was judged by um, our faculty advisor, Daniel Wallace, (laughs) who is the author of Big Fish, Kings and Queens of Rome, Extraordinary Adventures, and um, many other favorites. He's also drawn the cover art for our new issue. Um, And that cover art features dogs, so... I'm like particularly (laughs) pumped for this. Anyway, that comes out November 1st. And if you want to make sure that you get that issue, sign up for a one-year subscription by October 1st. We'll also be putting out a journal club discussion about that issue when it drops on the podcast. Also, be sure to follow us on social media, facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly, and Twitter, we are at nc underscore quarterly. If you want to follow us personally, because we're so delightful, I'm Sarah George Waterfield on Facebook, and you can follow my work at fabricthinking.wordpress.com. Calvin, do you want people to be able to find you? I would love that. 
Uh, I don't Twitter as much as I used to. I'm on Facebook as Calvin Olson, O-L-S-E-N. I also have a website, Calvin-Olson, O-L-S-E-N.com. There is a link to my haiku blog, which is an ongoing process Ooh. there. So we'll be back next month with um, maybe some poetry, maybe some fiction, maybe some insights. In the meantime, read well, write well, and thanks for listening to CQ Speaks. CQ Speaks.